All right. Welcome to the CXM Experience. And as always, I'm Grad Khan, CXO at Sprinkler. And I'm here today with a very special guest, uh, Ryan Benici, who is a CMO at Whereby and who uh, I've gotten to know pretty well over the last few years. Uh, number 26 on the Forbes Most Influential CMO list. Congratulations on that, Ryan. And we're just going to have a little chat today about, you know, how do you get on that Forbes list and uh, how do you become an influential CMO and what does that mean to you? And a little bit about sort of your career. So welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Grad. It's great to see you. I think the last time we were in person was in Cannes in That's France right. um, yeah. a few that years was... ago for the Cannes Lion Festival. Yeah, remember that room? It was like a million degrees. <laughs> so hot. It was great food, though, I remember. It was a good dinner. Good conversation, but it was hot for sure. It was, yeah, that was a, that was a hot room, but Cannes can, a lot of fun. I, I can't wait to do that again. When do you think it's coming back? I mean, maybe next year? Have they said? I'm not sure. I mean, I was obviously expecting for them, you know, this last year obviously was cancelled. I I don't know if they've set a date for this year or if they have. It's they tried maybe later in the year. They tried and seen? they pulled. Yeah, they tried okay. and they 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 were trying to stick a landing on June, if you can imagine Oof. this year. Okay. And they, they've definitely stopped. next year. Then it has to happen. I feel like I'm yeah. missing my peers and missing the creativity of that um that week in france i feel yeah. like it always brings me a lot more ideas to take back to work so yeah all right well let's let's talk a little bit about your career you know one of the things that you know as people listen to this they're always thinking you know how do i become a cmo or you know if you are a cmo how do i stay a CMO, which I would say potentially is more challenging on the staying side <laughs> than it is on the becoming side. Um, but, uh, you know, do you have a philosophy? Do you have some kind of overriding philosophy about how you do your job and, and what would you ascribe the success you've had to date to? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think, I think in terms of getting to being a CMO, um, and I, th I would say, I would argue this applies for any role um, on any team, but I think it's really about aligning yourself to where you can have the most impact for a company. So, you know, really early on in my career, I think I became really focused on how I in my role, whatever that role was, whether that was partner marketing, which is where I started um, whether, all, you know, all the way up to kind of where I am now, I've always, I guess, ultimately focused on how can I drive revenue in my role and how can I increase revenue in my role? So I think really focusing on revenue has served me really well. Um, what else? Um, but, but I think at the end of the day, you know, as you get more and more senior, um, I think the, the needs of the business are very different. And so I would say probably for the last five years, where I get a lot of my focus from is really working closely with the boards of the companies mm. that I work on. And, you know, whenever I take on a new role, I always spend a lot of time getting to know the board and getting to know what is it that they want me to achieve. Because I think at the end of the day, yes, the CMO reports often to the CEO, but really the whole executive team reports to the board. I think I report more to the board than often the CEO. Ultimately, I think that's, that's true of any executive. And so, when I joined G2, the last company I was at, you know, I, I was able to get real clarity from the board by kind of sitting down with them and really kind of getting them to think hard about what they wanted me to focus on. Um, because I think something that a lot of CMOs, I think a mistake a lot of CMOs make is they take on too much. And I think, you know, customer experience and, and 
marketing are so um I'd be curious what your thoughts are here, but I think there's so much overlap. They're so interconnected. And with the growth in um, all the different marketing technologies, all the different channels, marketers, I think, can get stretched too thin. Um, and so I think by getting really crystal clear direction from your board or just the ultimate person who is helping you make decisions around what is it that they want you to do and what should you prioritize, then you can work out what things you should sort of say no to. And so Anyways, at G2, when I joined, it was really clear for me there were three things. It was grow our traffic to the website. Um, so most people, I'm sure, are listening to this have, have heard about G2 and or have used it. G2.com, it's the world's largest software review site. Um, so, you know, millions of B2B buyers going there every month. And, um, and obviously, in a marketplace, both the buyer side and the seller side are incredibly important. And so the first thing that they asked me to focus on was buyers. How do we get more and more buyers there? Um, because we know that if we mm. get more buyers there, that will help us attract and convert more sellers, software companies, right? Um, so, you know, the first goal was traffic, which is buyers. The second goal was sellers, which is, you know, B2B sales revenue, working with our sales team. And then the third thing they asked me to focus on was building a lovable brand that everyone knows and trusts. And sorry, I know I'm talking for a long time now. I'll shut up in a hot second. But um, at the end of my first year, um, I remember, you know, having our fourth board meeting. So one every quarter and the board was like, okay, you know, you've been here for a year, Ryan. You've grown traffic exponentially. You've helped us grow revenue exponentially. You haven't, but you haven't done anything on the brand. And I remember sitting, like standing up in front of everyone. I remember this so vividly and saying, you're absolutely right. And I decided I made an executive decision without telling any of you that I was going to absolutely focus on traffic and revenue. And I wasn't going to do anything on brand because if I had just done brand and not focus on the other two things, you could have easily fired me. And now I have done something that you cannot fire me over. <laughs> and they all laughed and they were like, you're totally right. Okay, now, now please focus on the brand. So um, hopefully that kind of answers your question, I think, in terms of how I think about this. It's really about getting crystal clear alignment with your boss and, you know, whoever is helping guide the company and then over delivering on those things. And, and ultimately, it often rolls up to revenue, ultimately. Yeah, I totally agree on the revenue comment. It's interesting. Your, your perspective is interesting the, that the thinking of yourself as reporting to the board. How do you navigate that with the CEO? Um. That's a good question. Uh, I guess I've always had really, so from the get-go joining a company, I guess I've always built close relationships to the board members on the boards that I guess I'm ultimately reporting to. And I try to keep them, I guess, in the loop ultimately of what I'm working on and how that's tracking towards what they want me to work on. But I mean, I think the reason why I think of it in that way is that the CEO reports to the board. And so ultimately... If you spend a lot of time and attention with and on the board, you almost can prevent problems arising before maybe they could have cascaded down through the CEO, right? Like there's a lot of things on your CEO's plate um, and they most likely won't be able to think of and try and keep top of mind the things that the board has on them because there's so many different things, right? You know, decreasing churn and increasing NPS, you know, working on employee retention, like they are spread very thin, hence why yeah. they have an executive team. And so I think if you stay kind of really connected at the hip with your board, you can, I guess, just stay one step ahead and identify problems before they arise. 
Very interesting. Very yeah. interesting. I, I think yeah. I, maybe I'd also say is I've just been lucky to work also with CEOs that aren't um, or don't lack confidence. And so they're okay with me building that relationship with the board because they think they understand that it's for the best of the company. Um, I, I think, see. you know, I've heard from other CMOs that some of their bosses, CEOs might not like that because they want to manage all comms with the board. So again, I think it really depends on the company and the CEO. But to me, that would be a red flag if my CEO didn't want me to build that relationship. Interesting. Well, and I agree on your comment about stretch too thin, you know, CMOs, because you know, we tend to like sit across a lot of functions. So, you know, they're like, hey, digital transformation, CMO should do that. And, you know, you get tasked with a lot of stuff because it's there's a lot of the new things that are popping up don't have a natural home in the traditional structure. Right? And so there's a movement to CDOs and CXOs and some of these other roles that are starting to kind of come into existence. But classically, a lot of this new stuff just doesn't have anywhere else to go. So CMO gets it. And it's hard for CMOs to turn that down. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I guess the way I've always interpreted the CMO role is really encompassing many of those other functions that you just mentioned. But I think breaking it out also can make a lot of sense and having um, more C-suite folks for those different things. I guess it ultimately depends on the business. But um, yeah, I what think I'm starting to see, um, I'm starting to see yeah. some CMOs bring in a chief growth officer that reports to them. So mm. then they can kind of task one person with a fairly significant amount of the demand gen piece. And then it gives them a little bit more time for some of the brand stuff. I mean, that's because the demand gen piece can just suck you in the combination of the tech issues that you've got to deal with, all the spend issues and then tracking that every day and the pipeline that can just be the whole job. And then you can sort of lose the brand or you can lose other parts of it that are sometimes important. Totally. And, and I've actually always had a head of growth that's reported up to me. Um, so I think that's a hugely important part of it. And I think the other piece is just that my, I think CMOs and CPOs, so chief product officers, are, I think, learning how they can best kind of get aligned and work with each other. Um, you know, if I think of where mm-hmm. we are at right now, whereby, you know, we're a product led growth company, which means that, you know, um, all of our revenue today comes from credit cards. Um, it's touchless. The sales team isn't involved. So, you know, marketing is all about getting people into the funnel and moving them through the funnel. But obviously, we are so dependent on the product itself. And so I think the the more touchless your sales cycle is, the more you need to get aligned as a marketing leader with the thing that is selling for the company and you know in a in a b2b business where it's a sales rep obviously that means you know the cro chief revenue officer and the cmo need to be very closely aligned and i would say then in a in a more touchless or product-led growth company then it's really you and the chief product officer that need to get really closely aligned and work out ownership and where there are different overlays and so that's probably what i've been spending the majority of my time in the last three months since i started at whereby doing actually to make sure that um, we're set up for success this year yeah that whole plm motion the whole product-led marketing motion it really is a revolutionizing approach but it does require, again, marketing has to sit across a bunch of different functions to make all that work. It's very interesting. Uh, let me switch gears a bit to the personal, if you don't mind. Sure. All right. So what did you, uh, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? So funny you ask this. Um, I was a very weird kid um, because I think at the, the earliest I can remember this, the age of 10, I weirdly wanted to be a CMO. 
Um, really? Which That's is awesome. the bizarrest thing. I know. Like, I don't That's know great. where that came from. Um, that was the more practical, I think, route, actually. Like, if I think even maybe before then, I wanted to be a pop star or like a famous actor or singer or something. Sure, that sure. was kind Who doesn't? of. I did like karaoke <laughs> contests in Australia and stuff. Um, but then that all kind of went down the drain when I hit puberty, unfortunately, and my vocal cords changed. But um, yeah, weirdly, CMO, I, I think I, I I can't pinpoint why because no one in my family or friend circles had a, a, a family member that was a marketer, but there was something about it that always kind of spoke to me. Um, so yeah. Yeah, well, I talk about this all the time on the podcast because my dad was a madman. Uh, so he worked uh, at YNR wow. in the days in New York on Madison Avenue. And like from the time I was conscious four or five years old all i wanted to do was be in marketing and advertising um my mom always wanted me to be a doctor um and i think still does she she still holds out some hope that i could probably pull that (laughs) off at some point but uh i went into business and i've been here for a a long time well that's really cool i don't meet many people that have always wanted to do this you know a lot of people in marketing kind of fall into it accidentally and i always say that I'll see your perspective on this. I always say that, you know, a lot of people fall into marketing and then they're maybe they're good at it or maybe they like it or whatever and they kind of do it, but they never really treat it like a profession. So if you think about lawyers, doctors, you name a field, um, they're constantly going back to continuing education courses, constantly investing, constantly reading, constantly adding new thinking. And whereas a lot of marketers, it's like when the bell goes, you know, they're like, I'm going to do something else. Uh, they don't you know their hobby is not their job. And I think one of the things is an, an advantage for people like you and myself is that when you always want to do something, your hobby is your job. You've probably got, I'm going to guess, shelves of books on advertising and marketing and things you've been reading since you were 10 years old. Yeah. Uh, and when you don't have that, I think it's a real disadvantage. But you know, how do you coach people on that? When someone's you know relatively new in career, they want to become a CMO and they're like, hey, Ryan, how do I become just like you one day? <laughs> Because um, you're so awesome. <laughs> Can I have a job? Stop it, Brad. Stop it, Brad. Um, you know, I mean, there's a, like, there's a lot there. Let me unpack it. So I guess I would say um, for me earlier on in my career, um, I, I guess I think what helped me get to where I am today was that I really leaned into technology and being a first mm. mover of technology. Um, and so I guess I would I would say that I think what helped me get to where I am was that because I love technology, like I, I, I love SaaS, I love cool new products. I'm the first person often of anyone I know to be using a new piece of technology. And so that I think was a, was a huge part of helping me get to where I am today. And I think that was because of, you know, so much of marketing today is dependent on technology. And if you don't understand tech and you don't understand how you can leverage tech to connect with people in different ways, you're kind of limited, I guess, in scope in how you can apply and solve problems, you know, as, as a marketer. Um, so that helped me up for the majority of my career. Now, I actually would almost say now, once you become a CMO, you're kind of, you're you're one step removed from technology in a, in a lot of ways um, in terms of like you're not using it daily. And so I've found myself be more and more disconnected from technology. Um, mm. And I would also I would almost say that in the last five years, I've been I've been thinking more about like what are those tried and true principles of marketing, of copywriting of capturing someone's attention um, that are ultimately human psychology that never change. Because I think 
we're kind of at a point now where technology has become so saturated. And I think if you just having the technology it used to be for me back in the day, kind of a way for me to be be faster and better and, and more efficient than everyone else. And I think now we're at a point where we're, there's, we're so saturated in technology that that is no longer a differentiator. And so kind of going back to the basics and the principles is something that I think I've probably learned more so now than actually ever before in terms of studying it and reading it and, and you know, really going deep into that. But um, yeah, I would have always said earlier on in my career to, to new marketers, the best way to learn is to try it and to do it and to get as much experience as you can. And I think that's still another challenge with marketing today is that so much of what you learn changes every year because of technology that it's hard to, to really lean into a course or a university degree or a book if you're, if you're yeah. interested at least in yeah. the technology because it's, it's going to be out of date within months of being published because all the platforms are changing, right? Like TikTok isn't, isn't in any of the books from a few years ago. Right. Um, right, right. Not to say that you should lean your whole marketing show into TikTok by any means, but that, so I think... It's a it's a hard one. I, I think for me, though, if for for someone, if they were asking me how to get here, I think what I would always say is obsess over the problems that the company that you are working for is facing, and think creatively of new ways to to solve those problems. So, you know, in many of the companies prior that I've been at before I become a CMO, I would spend a lot of time trying to get getting to know my CMO, trying to get to know my COO and my CEO and understanding the problems that they are facing. Um, and so then I would go back to the drawing board and think, how can I use the skill sets that I have to help them solve that problem? Um, and I would listen to them talking at town halls and all of those things and try and just be as useful to help them solve problems that they may have. And that helped me, I guess, move up through the ranks quickly because I would hear a problem and then I would work out a way to solve it. And then I would kind of try and solve it and then share that data and that learnings with those people. And so that helped me kind of move up the, the ranks. That's great advice. Be a problem solver. Okay. So let me ask you uh, one more question and then I'll end with one little quick question. So um, what would you say is the most surprising thing about your career? If you were to, if you were to kind of try to think about the things that have happened to you in your career and, and lots of the things that happen are, are planned. Lots of the things we do, we have time to make choices about lots of the things we do. We're uh, getting ready for, and, and CMOs are planners. Like we're constantly planning. We're always uh, living a year in the future. You know, sometimes I'm, I try to remember what year am I in right now? It's always mm -hmm. tricky. What's the thing, though, that's surprising? What did you kind of be shocked? What were you shocked by? Um, what was I shocked by? Gosh, I don't think I've really been shocked by anything, to be honest. Wow, <laughs> that's impressive. Okay, you got something coming there. Yeah. You know, maybe <laughs> actually what I would say, if the one shock I think that I've had or the thing that's been most surprising that I don't think anyone tells you about, right, or at least for me, so, you know, wanting to be a CMO from a young age and working my butt off to get there, I would have loved more insight into just like once you get there, I think this is just true of leadership, really. It's kind of lonely at the top, actually. And mm. um, it changes, I think, the way you think of things and the way you view things because there's just a lot more on your plate. And I think, I don't know, there's something, I think I've become more accustomed to that and in the last few years. But 
early on, I think that was something that I struggled with was just like feeling, feeling disconnected from the team in some ways, right? Because I think when you're a team member in the team, you have all of these peers around you, you can, I don't know, I think maybe show things or, or I think you can be a little bit more vulnerable. And I guess initially going into a C-level role, I think I at least had this assumption that I needed to always have the answers, which felt very scary and felt like a lot of pressure. And I worked through it, but um, it wasn't really, I think, until I really learned how to leverage the broader exec team and leverage them as your peers. And I think also understanding that, you know, not everyone on the exec team always knows what they're doing at all at every point in time. Uh, And so not being maybe afraid to kind of share what you don't know and own it um, has helped. But I think that's the only big kind of shock or surprise. I mean, it's I think something comment. that would surprise people about me and or maybe my career journey is just, you know, I think I, I I took the job as CMO of G2, I think when I was like 28 or 29. And obviously just, you know, from like an average age perspective, that is a little bit surprising. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe the other random thing was I started my career as a flight attendant. Um, nice. So again, like international flying was kind of where I met my first like, marketing director who then told me that Microsoft was hiring marketers and graduates. And so I kind of took a little bit of time off from studying marketing to fly and travel. And so, again, I think it's always a a bizarre and beautiful combo of luck, chance, and kind of trying to be in the right place at the right time. So I don't know, there are a few nuggets for you to (laughs) dig into deeper if any of them are relevant. Well, if you, if you were to change one thing about your career, is there anything you'd change? Mm-hmm. it's okay Gosh. to say no right like you know not everybody has something they want to change but sometimes it's like i wish i'd yeah, eat more apples good question gosh i i think no no i think i think i would i mean i think I, I so i felt like one of the things that i think i really struggled with was um so and maybe this is not so much about about my career but maybe just like a broader lesson for others is that i think so much at least for me of what drove me to get to where i got to was actually driven by like low self esteem and i think i i realized this after i became a cmo and i think a few months in the the excitement of it fell fell to the side and i started to get that itch of like okay what next like how do i keep moving on up. And I had to kind of stop and kind of ask myself, Hey, like, this is literally the thing that you've been working towards for a really Mm. long time. Um, And now you're unhappy again and you're looking for the next thing like that. Like there's something wrong there, dude, like wake, wake up a little bit. And I did a lot of therapy and I still do a lot of therapy. I love therapy. Um, And long story short, I kind of, I was able to sort of realize that, you know, I was using money and, and career as a way to kind of like fill a bit of a hole um, that I had felt from a young age as a kid um, from being bullied when I was younger. I was an only child. I wasn't very social. I was super introverted, um, which is bizarre because I'm paid to be an extrovert <laughs> today. Um, but I think that would probably be the one big thing that I would change. I would have gotten therapy sooner so that I maybe Ooh, could have wow. disconnected advice. kind of like career possessions and money from my self-esteem. Um, and the craziest part of it all is like knowing what I know today and logically saying this to you, like I still struggle day to day to like pull apart my self-esteem from my career and from my bank balance, which is silly and embarrassing. But um, I guess like, 
you know, this shit is pretty deep seated. You know, the stuff that the, the stuff that we take on as kids, we kind of carry with us through life if we don't get enough therapy and we resolve it. So I don't know. It's kind Why? of like a daily struggle for me and something that I'm always working on. Well, that's very, that is really, uh, that's really deep, man. I like that you call yourself dude. <laughs> Did I call myself <laughs> when dude? You're, when you refer to yourself, you're like, hey, dude. Uh, but That's um, probably me being nice. My my internal <laughs> oh, voice is a lot more critical than that. Yeah, he doesn't oh, call me for dude that. for sure, yeah. Well, you, I, I, I agree with you. I think that not enough people, especially in our roles, take advantage of therapy. And I, I'm 100% believer in it as well. It makes a huge difference. And, you know, just this kind of one comment you made earlier about lonely at the top. You know, one of the things I found that was super surprising to me was the way that other people view you. And I think the one thing that's kind of strange about this job is that I don't actually feel that different than when I started as a brand assistant at Procter & Gamble. I'm still the same, you know, I kind of... Mm. But people don't view you that way. And so I'll have someone, I'll say, hey, let's just uh, have a chat with this person. Why don't we get together? We'll meet. And someone will say, whoa, you know, that's going to be really intimidating for them. I'm like, intimidating? Like, I'm not doing anything weird, but just the role itself creates a sense of fear and intimidation in other people that you have to keep in mind and consciously work around. And I think that's a little bit tricky because um, I always like to say, you know, there are no old people. There are just young people who have gotten old. And you scratch an 80 year old, they don't feel 80. Uh, they look at themselves and they still think they're 22. They just, what the hell happened to my face? Right. But it's like the people don't, people mentally don't age the same way that their bodies age. And I think that even as you mature in roles, you sometimes are still thinking like you're just sort of part of the gang, but the gang is looking at you in a very different way. And that can be really challenging. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. I, I have experienced that similarly, but a little bit differently. I think for me, one of the things that I really struggled with was when I took on the, that first CMO role, I think I felt so much imposter syndrome just because of my age that I was almost, I was so caught up in in this idea of like how I needed to seem and how I needed to come across yeah. to my team and to my company because of like that just internal yeah. fear of like, oh my gosh, they're going to find out that like, I actually yeah. don't know, or, or I am underqualified. And that really, I really struggled there. And I think that made me a lot less authentic, especially than I am today as a leader. And I've definitely grown a lot since then, but it really, it got me a little bit too much in my head, kind of trying to think about my, how I was coming across to others and getting in their head. And at the end of the day, you can't really control how other people think. And so, um, yeah, that's definitely well, a tough um, one. So you know who David Niven is? Famous Name actor. Sounds really familiar, but I can't. Yeah, okay. Super famous actor. He was like in every single movie in the 1960s. Anyway, he wrote a uh, he wrote a memoir in 1971 called "The Moon's a Balloon." Uh, oh, okay. and it's a fascinating, it's a great book. You'd love it. Cause it's and you should, oh, nice. it's a, in our industry is actually a great book. Cause it's just, he talks about, um, uh, sort of the history of Hollywood through the fifties and sixties. It's quite amazing. Oh, nice. Um, but he had massive imposter syndrome and he describes the scene that every single day when he was on set or when he was in a movie, he expected someone to come up from behind tap him on the shoulder and say, okay, David, okay. <laughs> okay. Gigs up. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're off you go, off you go. You're not, you're not really an actor because he never felt like he was really an actor. He just thought he was just 
doing David Niven. Um, but he was an incredibly <laughs> successful and really super famous. Uh, he's actually one of his most famous things that's kind of survived is there was a streaker at the 1972 Academy Awards. It was David oh. Niven who was presenting the Academy Award that the streaker ran by. And he had this <laughs> amazing line, which is something like, I should have to look it up, but it's something very... He had a very sort of like derogatory comment on the person's um, assets and oh, uh, wow. <laughs> something not everybody should be out naked or something. I can't remember. It was much better than that. It was, and it was on the, it was on the fly, right? So oh it was, it was brilliantly done. I'll have to find that and put that in another podcast. So Ryan, you've been really generous with your time today. I only have one last really quick question, which is we ask everybody, um, hot dogs. Okay. Are hot dogs, um, a sandwich? Yes or no? Yes, they are. Okay. <laughs> you know, everybody yeah. takes some time on that one. Yeah, <laughs> it's I amazing. Some, I need to think about it. You're um, going to be yes on hot dogs are a sandwich. Okay, I got it. I like I'm it. Okay. Gonna, yeah, what do you think about this? Uh, I have no opinion. I, I basically <laughs> want to see what people... I have noticed there's a difference between vegetarians and meat eaters on terms of whether Ooh, they think it's a sandwich it, or not. Mm, tell me more there. about that because I... Vegetarians I, don't think it's a sandwich. That is bizarre because I'm a vegetarian yeah. well, I'm actually vegan. Oh, okay. so, so, well, so we're breaking the mold here then. Okay. Yeah. Right. Maybe good. that means I didn't think about it all that much though because I don't really eat. No, maybe dogs. that's why you thought about it so much. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Ryan, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks for having me, Grad. This was fun. Uh, for the CXM Experience, I'm Grad Khan, CXO at Sprinkler. My guest today was Ryan Benici, CMO at Whereby. And we had a wonderful conversation about being a CMO. Ryan, thank you very much. And for all the rest of you, I'll see you next time.